Hey everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Sabrina. And I'm Melanie. And today we're lucky to have the chance to speak with Mark Summers, who is an internationally recognized expert in youth conflict, development, gender, and education, not to mention an experienced evaluator and an award-winning author. He's conducted research assessments and evaluations alongside providing technical advice in 22 war-affected countries, 16 of which have been in Africa since 1990. His most recent book titled The Outcast Majority, War, Development, and Youth in Africa received the 2017 Jackie Kirk Award and honorable mention for the 2016 Senior Book Prize of the American Ethnological Society. Thank you for joining us, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. To get started, we like to ask our guests to talk about an inflection point, a place where they had to pivot or adjust in their career or personal lives. Can you share a moment with us? Yeah. Um, I When I was uh, in an undergrad, I had this idea that I was going to go to Africa and, and be a teacher. And I didn't want to go with the Peace Corps. I wanted to go, um, and I found out you could get hired by a local school, so in, in Western Kenya. And uh, I got out there, and there was this one school I was at, and I was enjoying teaching English and, you know, hanging out, and I had a little house in the valley, and it was really nice. And I was told I had to be the headmaster, and I was like, 23 years old, I can't be the headmaster. It was a girls' high school. And I said, I can't be, you know, the headmaster. I'm too young. And they said, well, you have to be because it, it, it wasn't my age, it was my degree that was the separation. They couldn't hire somebody with a bachelor's degree or above to be my, to be the boss. So I either had to be the headmaster or I had to leave because they couldn't get a, they couldn't hire one. So I said, I'll tell you tomorrow. And I went home and thought about it, and I thought, okay, I'm going to dive in the deep end. And that was a transformative experience. So I was a headmaster for almost two years. And um, I had to draw on resources I didn't really know I had. And I got really sort of very, very... Um, committed to issues regarding Africa, really quite fascinated with, with African people and African history and sort of African context. And then also it was a girls' school, so I, I also got very engaged on gender issues from an early age. So that, that stayed with me, and after quite a, you know, many more experiences in my 20s, I went to grad school in a at Boston University, which had an African studies program in anthropology, and that really was the event that, that pushed me in that direction. So you mentioned this um, experience definitely shaped your academic interests in the future, but mm -hmm. I was wondering how it shaped your personal outlook on, um, you've coined the term, the conception of manhood among youths. Like, how did that change your personal view of your youth transitioning into your manhood with all these responsibilities as a headmaster? Huh, that's a great question. Um, yeah, the, 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 the whole issue of manhood, masculinity is really kind of a moving target. Um, uh, in most religions and most cultures, um, femininity, becoming a woman, is actually quite grounded. It's connected to nature. You know, the idea is that nature transforms you. And, and you become a woman. You become a vehicle of life. I mean, in a sort of that classic idea. But a boy 
becoming a man is is the expectation is for society to do that transformation or to to, to move to, to to push the boy and sometimes force the boy um, into into manhood. Uh, so you have kind of a, a, a this very unstable ground that um, mass that youth are in, male youth are in. And I was one of those. I mean, you know, you're supposed to be a provider and a protector, and you can't get sick, and you have to be invulnerable, and all these kinds of things. And and then also you have to be kind of sensitive. It's really confusing and very difficult to do. So I think um, when I came back from Africa, from Kenya, I was uh, I was struggling. I my 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 goal was to be a freelance photographer, and uh, so I did that for a while and I was I was printing pictures when they used to print photographs um, uh, during the day and then I did a lot of freelancing and I shifted to New York and I did even more freelancing um, but then sort of the expectations of of stability came into play and well first financially um, but I think I also had to sort of pitch my myself forward into where was I headed and one of the influences of being in Africa was, I was quite sure after having that very powerful experience in Africa that I definitely wanted to be a parent and to have children. And so I think I, I absorbed that idea that a man has to have a family or you're not a man. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think it was conscious as much as, you know, I looked around and thought about it and I, I, uh, I did absorb that. I was influenced by, you know, my, former colleagues and friends in, in, in Western Kenya. And so that, I think that became a big part of my definition of manhood was, was family life. That's interesting to hear kind of how you came out the other side thinking differently and to get at more about your, your mindset going into the experience. Mm -hmm. you, you started the whole story by saying you didn't want to do the Peace Corps. And I'm curious, um, looking back, maybe there's a bit more bureaucratic red tape now than then, or maybe that's not true, but what, how would you advise students thinking about um, international development and conflict prevention as to how to avoid maybe more superficial experiences or avoid sort of immersive trips that paint themselves as an ability to get away for a year and see things for a year? How would you advise students about getting themselves really in the middle of things to have the best learning experience possible? Huh. Well, uh, I, that's that's it. That's a very good question. Um, I, I think for for young people generally, uh, students generally, it's hard to have an experience of what it's like to be poor. Um, and everybody who goes to your college, uh, everybody who goes to a college, becomes an elite, regardless of your background. And it's hard for elites to. Um, identify and and have an experience of what it's like to not be one and actually in many cultures there are lots of social cues that 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 elites actually I think learn without even being aware of it of establishing that separation between you know your level and everyone else so to be an effective person to reach out uh, to poor people um, and and have some sort of transformative experience has to be authentic and, um, you know, you have to sort of challenge yourself. Most people are, you know, I think you're going to have to, most people will have to go through 
some challenges before they come out on the other side, able to engage um, authentically with people who are very different from you and have very much less than you um, and see the world in a very different way. One of the differences I find with international development is in the West, international development tends to be secular. Most of the, with the exception of NGOs like World Vision, most are, have a real secular orientation, the workers in it. Well, most of the world, most people in the world are very religious. And uh, God is a real idea, it, or it's not even an idea, it's a literal concrete fact in, in people's lives. And I think it, it, it's an example of a separation between uh, people living in a kind of, in their, in their minds, intellectualizing things. And then what life is really like on the ground is actually very different. And so I think to do this work um, in a, with real effectiveness, um, you have to be open to challenging yourself first, uh, because without that, people will see right through you. And uh, so that's, a, that's an important step. Definitely. So Mark, you're also part of the UN's advisory group, uh, experts for the progress study on youth, peace, and security. Yes, I am. And um, I was wondering, could you share a little about the difference working with international organizations and working on the field to tackle issues about development and like working with youth? Well, um, the I, I mean the, the 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 expert group is comprised of a lot of youth. Um, I'm one of the you know the few kind of old people on the, uh, in, the, in the group. And these are youth activists and really impressive, incredibly impressive and very brave young people um, and very wise young people. Um, you know, it, it was a very egalitarian group. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, I think what we tried to do or what it, what it was designed to do was to bring people together from different ages and different experiences to talk about um, giving youth a voice, um, empowering youth, um, having them participate in an authentic way in their lives, in the lives of their countries uh, um, and villages and neighborhoods um, in a way that where they're actually really engaged. So my experience in the field is quite often as a researcher or a, a technical advisor, a strategic advisor for agencies on the ground, local agencies. Um, I've also done a lot of work uh, engaging with um, government officials. In the big organizations in Washington and London and so forth and so on, they're really pitched, um, you know, uh, poverty is kind of an intellectual theoretical idea, um, and there are trends that get influenced. Um, uh, there's a sense that data can provide all the answers, um, which my research actually doesn't su uh, uh, support entirely. Um, so I, I think there's that, there's that uh, distinction. The other thing is there's a trend nowadays, which I find very troubling, that this idea that you can use data, use quantitative data, and solve problems. And when you solve problems, like a specific targeted problem, like, you know, bed nets to avoid malaria, then that's it. Then things are better for those people's lives. But you never ask them what they think. What is it like to be poor? 
What is it like to be that person? So there was an example of handing out bed nuts for this uh, one community in Kenya, and they were, you know, herders in the desert area, um, and they used the bed nuts very rationally uh, over their goats because they didn't. They, you know, what mattered is that you know without their goats, they don't have any money. Right. That's their savings. That's their investment. So they used it not for their children or for themselves. They used it for their goats um, to make sure that they didn't get malaria so that they could grow to be healthy, so they can be sold, so they can, you know, you can use the milk and so on and so on and so on. So there was a real logic to it. Um, and that logic is different than the ones of people in, you know, headquarters making decisions. So this idea, this antiseptic way of dealing with um, uh, the problems of poor people in development is a major, major constraint to our work today. That's awesome to hear you talking about the extent to which you engage with people directly, and that's definitely something we've heard out of your other interviews and, and pieces you've written. And I'm curious how your ability to do that and your role in that conversation has changed over time. I think um, something Dean Uvin actually, um, who you worked with and who's now at Claremont McKenna, uh, talked about to a class I took as a freshman was that he was once incredibly disappointed to realize that people gave him a lot more respect and credibility as the expert in the room than they did to people of the country he was trying to help to those countries, leaders and citizens. And I'm curious whether that's something you've also experienced as you've become an expert yourself, if you miss any of the um, kind of stealth you had when you were younger and inexperienced, able to move through countries without being as noticeable, or if um, your your leverage now has given you more of an opportunity to engage in those conversations. No, that's such a good question. I mean, I think you know, um, and I know Dean Newman would totally agree with me that, you know, this, this work is about trying to improve things. And so as your, um, I guess my, as my sort of um, profile changes, then I have to sort of uh, adapt to that, you know, that profile to be, you know, to, to leverage it properly to still be effective. So I guess you're right. I mean, I think I'm now talking to higher level people in a government <laughs> um, than I probably used to. Uh, um, and certainly in terms of international agencies, I'm more regularly called on uh, for my views. Um, whether I'm more effective or not, whether I have more influence, I, I, I think that that's a case-by-case -case basis. I'm not mm -hmm. so sure, but... Uh, certainly my sort of my meeting point um, is different. I would say that uh, an important part of this work as a researcher or as somebody engaged in this work is humility. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's not always easy. You're often looked at as the foreigner, as Dean Yuvin said, as the expert, which is ridiculous. You know, you're just the outsider and you can bring some new ideas but what on earth is an expert? These are really kind of, you know, complicated problems and challenges. And how on earth could I be seen as an expert in anything? I mean, I don't feel that. I mean, I regularly, one of the things I love about interviewing young people is that there can be a 17-year-old male youth or female youth, or it's just like I'll be interviewing them, and they'll just blow my mind with a new way of seeing something or of analyzing something that I had never thought of before. So that's always like 
that's always really great. So. Yeah, thinking about that difficulty you you describe of, of being an expert but not always feeling like one, I'm also curious how, given that you work across so many countries with so many disparate conflicts, how do you, how do you keep yourself so informed? Are you very committed to a regimen of, of reading specific news outlets or is it something that's just natural to you to constantly digest new research? Is it something you deliberately organize the amount of time you focus on different issues at a time or, or spread your own work around? Um, I, I guess I, I try to read very strategically um, and try to think about what are the strengths and weaknesses of the source of the information. So it's always good I love reading the Economist Intelligence Unit, the EIU reports for a country before I go anywhere. It, uh, you can get these reports downloaded, I'm sure, in your library. And they, in 20 pages, they give you tremendous sense of context. But that's a real political economy kind of analysis. I also want to uh, look at, like, who's been on the ground in these places. Um, uh, to get a sense of what are those issues. And then when I get to the country, I, I, I tell a lot of stories and in interviews, and what I'll try to do is to bring out what's different about the place I'm in by telling stories about, you know, basically like in country X, you know, this was going on. Is it like that here? And quite often it isn't, uh, or it's, it's really quite different. And I find that people love those, generally love those comparisons, and it opens up like really useful discussion. The one place where I always feel like I'm going back to grad school is Timor Leste, East Timor. <laughs> it is so different with regards to youth issues than anywhere else I've been. It is fascinating because I, I uh, just the, the whole context of my, you know, research of my exploration has to really adapt. So uh, I, I was just riveted when I was there for that reason. So the last question we ask all of our guests is, what is your personal definition of success and how would you help students define success for themselves? Well, um, when I was teaching at uh, the Fletcher School, we had, I had many of these conversations and I guess that it would, I, I, my advice would boil down to aim high. Um, I think quite often you, I, I, I did this too, you know, I'm sure I still do it, you know, confidence is so hard to hold on to in life. And to hold back before you have <clears throat> a family or children in particular, you know, go for it. And I, I, that was really, don't, don't let somebody say that you can't achieve it. And I know that this sounds like a, like, I don't know, a self-help book or something. I'm not <laughs> saying it that way, but I do find that People will say, well, I'm not sure if I can do that. Maybe I can do, like, the second level. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, we're on this planet for only so long in our current sort of uh, shape anyway. Um, what do you want to do with that time? You know, you want to make money? Well, if you do, if that's your main focus, you're not going to enter in the line of work that I'm in. Right. I make a good living. I'm not... Yeah. It's not that I'm, you know, uh, that I don't, but it, it has never been the focus of what I do. Um, but that has to do with having a sense of purpose in, in life and a sense of um, 
of understanding before knowing how you can contribute. And so I guess, you know, I think young people need to think hard as, you know, what, what, what do you want out of life? If it's just money, don't talk to me. <laughs> you know, you know, go to talk, talk to a financial person or go to Wall Street or something. But why would you talk to me about that? Um, if you're talking about a deeper level of experience in the kind of fields that I work in, then we have a lot to talk about. Definitely. And I'm sure our listeners have a lot to think about now. Uh, but we want to thank you so much for joining us and, and to all our listeners out there, stay hungry.